we're coming to a bit of a funny part, actually, in this sutta now. The uh, last thing that um, I read out was that Puddhapada said to the Buddha, Suritis, Lord, Suritis, welfarer, and now is the time for the Blessed Lord to do as he sees fit. (coughs) Then the Lord rose from his seat and went away. And then the wanderers, as soon as the Lord had left, reproached, sneered, and yeared at Potapada from all sides, saying, Whatever the ascetic Gautama says, Potapada agrees with him. He says, So it is, Lord, so it is, Welfarer. We don't understand a word of the ascetic Gautama's whole discourse. <laughs> so they're um, quite upset with Potapada because he's agreeing. And now they say, We don't understand. Is the world eternal or isn't it? Is it finite or isn't it? Is the soul the same as the body or isn't it? And does the Tathagata exist after death or not? Or both? Or neither? <laughs> so then Puttapada says, I don't understand either about whether the world is eternal or not. <laughs> so we don't have to feel bad. They don't understand it either. Um, I don't understand either whether the Tathagata exists after death or not, or both, or neither. But the ascetic Gautama teaches a true and real way of practice, which is consonant with Dhamma and grounded in Dhamma. This is not uninteresting. They're calling him the ascetic Gautama. They're not calling him the Buddha. And, of course, he was long the Buddha by that time. So an ascetic is one like them. And a wanderer. And they're giving him the name, his name. Siddhartha Gautama was his name. And so they're calling him the ascetic Gautama. And they're saying, or he is saying, Puttapada is saying, um, that he's teaching a way of practice consonant with Dhamma, grounded in Dhamma. So the word Dhamma is being used by people, uh, by him, who's not a Buddhist. He has not actually really heard the Buddha's teaching other than what's going on in this sutta. The word Dhamma here means that it's grounded in truth, in absolute truth, in laws of nature. Now we often or constantly use the word Dhamma to denote the teaching of the Buddha. But here he's saying he is teaching a way of practice consonant with truth. And why should not a man like me express approval of such a true and real practice so well taught by the ascetic Gautama? So he's still not a devotee or a disciple of the Buddha because then he'd call him the Buddha. He's uh, calling him by his name and actually giving him a sort of uh, title which... (laughs) would denote that he doesn't think that he's anything different from them. But he has seen (coughs) that the teaching is good, it's practice, so he's approving of it. Now, two or three days later, Chitta, the son of the elephant trainer, went with Potapada to see the Lord. Chitta prostrated himself before the Lord and sat down to one side 
So now we can assume that Chitta was already um, a devotee or had heard of uh, the Buddha's teaching and was already um, feeling devotion to the Buddha. But Puttapada just exchanged courtesies with the Lord and sat down to one side and told him what had happened between him and the other wanderers, how they had uh, reproached him and sneered at him. And um, then the Buddha said, Puttapada, all those wanderers are blind and sightless. You alone among them are sighted. The uh, words blind and sightless and being sighted is, of course, uh, optical, but it uh, refers to inner sight. And the Buddha often used this kind of simile and said, there are a few people with little dust in their eyes. Little dust in their eyes obviously means the inner eye. E-Y-E, not I. And uh, the inner eye, little dust on it means that one can actually recognize what the Buddha is teaching. Because after his enlightenment, he stayed under the Bodhi tree, enjoying the Nibbanic bliss, and decided that he wouldn't teach because people would not understand his Dhamma, his doctrine. And if they didn't understand, it would be a vexation for him. So he actually had decided he wasn't going to say anything because it was so opposite and opposed to anything people would had heard so far and anything that people actually um, relate to in their own lives. So nothing has changed because he is teaching the doctrine of non-self. And then the story says that the highest Brahma, the highest of the gods, came to see him and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and men. And uh, it may have been a vision, it may have been an inner voice, it may have been something that occurred to him. And then he looked around and said, there are a few people with little dust in their eyes. And for those, I will teach. So he then decided he will, would go and teach. But at first he thought this is going to be far too difficult for anyone to understand. And, uh, but luckily he did go out and teach. And uh, it's not too difficult. It's difficult, but it's not too difficult. So we have that opportunity. So he says, all those wanderers are blind and sightless, and you alone among them are sighted. Some things I have taught and pointed out, Potapada, as being certain, and others as being uncertain. Now, which are the things I've pointed out as uncertain? Whether the world is eternal or not, whether the world is infinite or not, whether the soul is the same as the body, and whether the Tathagata exists after death. 
Why have I de declared them to be uncertain? Because they're not conducive to Nibbana. That is why I have declared them as uncertain. Again, he points out that he only teaches that which is conducive to final liberation. That we have many steps on the way is clear. We, I have mentioned before that we need not look at the end of the road. We have to look at every step. But all the steps he's teaching are all conducive, are all leading in one direction only. No matter where we look in his teaching, it all leads in one direction only. And just as that was not always understood in his time, and certainly not taught by many teachers, it's the same today. There's only one direction and one goal, and that's Nibbana. Whatever we do on the way is fine. That's our travel, our journey. Our journey leads from step to step, and if we follow the guidelines, we have the right path. But we can know that this is where it leads to. And it does not lead to annihilation. There's nothing in Nibbana which is annihilation. What is in Nibbana is the end of all illusion. Clarity. Complete and utter knowing. But then also, this complete and utter knowing is not being omniscient. The Buddha was asked one time whether he was, and he said, I cannot know everything all at once. I can know where I put my mind. So Nibbana does not bring with it something that is um, where one can make a great impression because one knows everything. It's the end of delusion and the end of Dukkha but no annihilation. And that's also often misunderstood. So he's pointing this out um, more than once in this sutta and in many others. All I'm teaching is the way, the path, step by step. Now, what things have I pointed out as certain? This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering, and this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And why? Because these are conducive to the purpose, conducive to Dhamma. The way to embark on the spiritual life, and they lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calm, higher knowledge, enlightenment, to Nibbana. That is why I've declared them as certain. So again, he's bringing Potapada back to the Four Noble Truths. And again, he enumerates the steps which are, so to say, those that are inside steps which lead one to that point where one can let go of this illusion step by step. We have already talked about disenchantment 
and we've talked about dispassion. Now, the word cessation is used in many different ways. Particularly, we have heard it used as a cessation of feeling and perception in the ninth jhana. And that is one way of using the word cessation. There is also a way of using the word cessation in the context of Nibbāna, cessation of dukkha, cessation of all suffering, cessation of all illusion. That's another way. Here, the word cessation is used in a third way, because it is one step on the way. And the word is used here to denote that because of dispassion, one ceases to have the three cravings. The three cravings of sensual desire for sensual gratification, a craving for existence, and the craving for non-existence. Now, these three are the basic underlying causes for us being here as human beings. People are often um, tempted to blame their parents in some manner or form that they haven't done the right things, and uh, quite likely they didn't because they're also not enlightened. But our own craving brought us into that family and brought us here. And mind you, the Buddha also was a human being, and he saw that quite clearly. And this is something that one needs to investigate. We have already talked at some length about our desire for sensual gratification, and if we investigate that, I think we should know. But the desire, the craving for existence is something else again. It's the strongest thing that we have which pushes us around all the time. And it's quite possible to notice that in a situation such as here. In our daily life, we're probably too busy to pay attention to that. Um, people actually like to be busy because then they don't have to see all these unsatisfactory things that are happening in a human life. Of course, they like to be busy and then they complain they are too busy. And that's our usual way of handling that. But here, we're not too busy. We haven't got that excuse. So to look at the craving for existence is a very worthwhile endeavor. If we really understand it, that really we get a feeling for that, we will know what the Buddha taught, because it's plain, continuous dukkha. What does it make us do? It makes us grasp for things to fill the mind. That's why we're thinking. It makes us move 
to get away from whatever it is that we're experiencing. All we have to look at is what our bed looks like in the morning. It's usually all rumpled and things are all over the place. We've been moving. Even though we didn't know it, but the mind was still having dukkha, even in sleep, and made the body move. When we wake up, what's the first thought? Who is thinking, isn't it marvelous to be alive? Rare, very rare. <laughs> Most people think entirely opposed thoughts to that. Ah, here we go again. Or something on that level. And do we realize how we come out of sleep? How the consciousness arises and then wants to be filled with all sorts of happenings. So we make it happen. We look around for things to happen. It's too boring otherwise, we say. But it's strictly only a, a measure to support this illusion that we are really here and to help us continue with our craving to be. Everything that we do is actually directed towards that. And if we were to examine that, we would very easily find that out, whatever it is that we're doing. And even the best things we're doing, there's still a support system for just that. It's helpful and useful to take one, a whole day and examine it. One can take the one that's happening now and examine every moment, or if that's too difficult, which it sometimes is because we're too near it, we can take yesterday. What was I doing yesterday? How did I occupy my mind? How did I keep that illusion of self going? What was I doing? And can I recognize the craving for existence in that constant movement? Now, the constant movement is not only physical, physical too, but the constant movement is mental. We latch on to this here and to that there, and we think what we could do in the future and what we have done in the past. All of that is totally unnecessary, of course, but it's all of the same ilk. There's nothing other than trying to support this craving. We can only know that we're here when we think. So if we can let go of thinking in meditation, 
we have another meditation subject. But if we can let go of it in meditation, we can learn to let go of it in daily life and thereby reduce that craving. And as we let go of it, calm arises within us without having to sit down to meditate. It's calm. It's totally calm because we know we don't have to crave for existence because we have seen existence for what it is, unsatisfactory. Until we've seen that, of course, we wouldn't try. But having seen that, we would. So the cessation that the Buddha is talking about here is the cessation of those three cravings. Now the craving not to be is just the other side of the same coin of the craving to be. And it is rooted in the same delusion that there is a me who wouldn't like to be here because everything is awful and I just want to get out of it. And that is one of the great obstacles to getting to the moment of an experience of Nibbana. Everything is awful, I want to get out of it, is nothing other than the craving for non-existence. It is not leading to Nibbana. So if we have already understood Dukkha and are now willing to uh, investigate the craving for existence, we have to be careful that we don't come to the conclusion, everything is dreadful, so I want to get out of it, because I can never get out of it. What we need to substitute for that is the letting go. You see, I want to get out of it is actually getting something. I want to find the escape. I want to get that but that doesn't work it's the other way around letting go of everything that covers up this illusion so that we take it for reality that works so it's actually the inner practice of seeing things again and again as they are and not as we believe them to be. As long as we see them as we believe them to be, we cannot continue. This is um, brought out here by those wanderers um, that are talking to Podapada and uh, reproaching him. They are stuck on their belief and they don't like to hear anything new. Parapada likes to hear something new, but he still hasn't quite caught on to what he should be doing. So, the cessation mentioned here, a result of this passion, needs investigation, contemplation. Contemplation can be done at any time. One can do it in the meditation period, one can do it sitting on a stump, sitting on one's bed, it doesn't matter where one does it. Some people do it walking. I don't know. I've never done that. 
So uh, I've always uh, thought that sitting down was better for contemplation than walking. And contemplating a whole day of one's activity here, as we're here, from morning to night, and then recognizing not any particular unsatisfactoriness in one's life, one, no, the whole thing from morning to night. How does it manifest? Can I actually see it? Some of, some of it is fine and subtle. All of it is niggling and not conducive to peacefulness. So having come to this sensation, what is said here, the next step is calm. And I've just referred to that, that if we've learned to drop our thinking because we have learned to meditate, then we can also learn to drop the thinking during the day when there's nothing to think about. Have you noticed how often one thinks about anything at all when there is nothing to think about? Absolutely nothing. One just brings it up. And it might not even be past or future. It may be anything. Anything at all. And if one catches oneself in that, which is not difficult, one can try to let go of the thinking and just have bare awareness without anything that touches the mind. There's just that purity and translucent mind which we always have, but it doesn't have to think. It doesn't have to react. We can just be. And at that moment, it's very calm and very um, conducive to restoring one's energy. Thinking is hard work. People get very tired from it. People who have a, a job where they don't do anything more strenuous with their body than maybe pressing buttons or pushing a ballpoint around are dead tired in the evening because they had to think what they're doing. Now, obviously, they had to do that to make a living, but it's extremely tiring. None of us have to think here when it's not necessary. So the cessation, obviously this is not easy, because the cessation of the craving for existence makes it possible to get that kind of calm outside of meditation. And we can only have the cessation of the craving for existence when we have actually become aware of it, how it manifests all the time. And when we have seen that it's totally unsatisfactory and that it makes us restless and um, agitated, even though we may not appear that way. But there is inner restlessness and inner agitation. And we usually try to find a cause for that, one cause. There is only one cause. And we usually don't find that one. It's that craving for existence. 
So having that to contemplate, one will come, come nearer to the root of all evil. That's it. That is the root of it all. And when we see that in ourselves, it's an aha experience. It makes a lot of difference. Obviously, the calm mind that has been meditating well can look at it better because the, um, it can look objectively and not subjectively. Not it's me doing all this and I have to do it and if I don't do it, nobody else will do it and uh, that has to be done because it's a good thing to do and of course it takes too much time but and so on. That's subjectively. But objectively, we just see a person. A person acting. A person that is using the inner drive. The inner drive, the craving for existence. All of it, every bit of it, is a craving for existence, no matter where that drive leads us. And the difficulty of attaining Nibbana lies exactly in that paradox. We have to have the drive to do the practice and understand the Buddhist teaching and investigate and contemplate and meditate. It needs drive. But then we have to let go of the drive for existence in order to get to Nibbana. There's a real paradox in there. There's a switch. It's like having to switch from one uh, set of rails to another. One can only do it when one has investigated oneself so deeply that one knows every facet that's going on. And there's nothing within oneself that needs to be um, disliked, blamed, or resented, or where we need to have any guilt feelings. Nothing at all. Everything that's within us is human nature. That's why we've got it. And we can get out of it. But we've got to see the basic underlying causes. It's very interesting to do that sort of contemplation. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but then the things that are so easy usually don't produce great results. So it's better to do something which is a little more difficult. So we have cessation and we have calm, and then comes higher knowledge. Now higher knowledge has uh, different connotations, and I'm not going to go into all of them, the only important one, the only really important one, is the one where the person who has been practicing like that knows that the hindrances, together with the underlying tendencies, which are very similar to the hindrances, have been abandoned. Now, they can only be abandoned if the craving for existence has been abandoned. Because as long as we have craving for existence, one cannot abandon the hindrances. They are part and parcel of every human being. 
and they don't even get any any less in their most major aspect on the first step to Nibbana. They are helped, of course, but they, their greed and hate does not get addressed. The purification aspect makes a great deal of difference, and the purification is addressed through the concentration in the meditation and also, of course, through mindfulness, through substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome. These are our greatest support systems for our purification. And it all hinges on that, or hinges on purification. So that higher knowledge is then enlightenment, Nibbana, next two steps, enlightenment, Nibbana. I dare say that the word Nibbana is only used as, sort of as an extra ex explanation of enlightenment because it's impossible to see that there's any difference between the two. They are the same thing. And uh, one would say that's just a, a turn of a phrase that the Buddha used, using both enlightenment and Nibbana. What he's saying here is the whole way of the inside path when it has actually arisen through having been able to do the meditation to the extent where the mind becomes clear enough to investigate the deepest underlying foundations of our being. And that is the deepest underlying foundation of our being, the craving for existence. And it makes us do sometimes really absurd things. And other times it just makes us do what we always do from morning to night. So that is why I have declared these as certain. Now, now the, the Buddha says to Potapada something else. He's trying to teach him. He has now explained, the, it's twice already, the Four Noble Truths and twice already the pathway of insight to Nibbana, but he knows very well that Potapada is um, still not um, really on the path. So he's going to explain on a different level to him. And uh, he says, Potapada, there are some ascetics and Brahmins. Now, when he talks about ascetics and Brahmins, he talks about these wanderers, and the priests, and some of those are undoubtedly teaching the uh, public, particularly the Brahmins. Brahmins is a priest caste, then and now, and were always considered to be the spiritual teachers of the people, and the ascetics, some of them, and some not. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death, the self is entirely happy and free from disease, our notion of paradise. Get a nice little harp and be happy forever. Hmm? Or something similar to that. And mind you, that sort of thing is still going around even in Buddhism. 
even that kind of um, unfortunate idea. It's the idea that um, if one chants the name of the uh, next Buddha, one will be reborn in the pure land. And there one is always happy. So that's the same paradise idea. Um, I approached them, the Buddha says, and asked if this was indeed what they declared and believed. Apparently he, didn't, he couldn't believe it that they were saying that. And they replied, yes. And then I said, do you friends living in this world know and see it as an entirely happy place? And they replied, no. So I said, have you ever experienced a single night or day, or half a night or day, that was entirely happy? Well, they're saying no. But what he's trying to tell Puttapada, that not only that these ascetics and Brahmins, which comes at the end, are talking nonsense, but that anyone who believes that in the world we can find happiness is on the wrong track. And he obviously also would like Puttapada to investigate that. Just as I have um, suggested that we look, contemplate what we do from morning to night to manifest our craving for existence. I would also like to suggest that we contemplate the kind of dukkha we are experiencing from morning to night. Right here and now, today or yesterday. Yesterday is still fresh in the mind. Today is happening. So if we can see that, that we are constantly trying to remove ourselves from one thing because it isn't satisfying and get to the next one and then finding out that that isn't satisfying, go to the next one. We will see what is meant when the Buddha says, can you find an entirely happy day and night? That doesn't mean unhappy. It's not unhappy, which is the opposite of this. It's not totally satisfying. It's not totally fulfilling. We don't have to become unhappy. Of course, sometimes we do. But we don't have to investigate a day which was unhappy, although that too helps. Just an ordinary day. What happens? How often is there an emotion or a thought which is not conducive to calm, to cessation, to nibbana. If you like, you can make a little dash on a piece of paper every time there is one. If you don't have big enough paper, I can supply it. <laughs> and that's dukkha. All that is dukkha. It's not a real unhappiness. It's just not having total peace and total happiness 
total joy within. And there are moments when we have some joy. How long do they last? Check it out. An ordinary day from morning to night. Just see it for what it is. When we have recognized Dukkha, we're on the path. And not Dukkha in the accepted sense of the word that something isn't happening that we want to happen or something is happening that we don't want to happen. That's ordinary Dukkha. Everybody knows about that. And we blame that situation or that person. No, just being alive and checking that out and seeing what that's like. What is it like to be alive? So that is not meant to create disgust for life. Not at all. What it creates, if we see it truly, is an acceptance of the unsatisfactoriness and an understanding that the Buddha found the absolute solution and possibly also the determination to be able to follow in those footsteps and also realize the absolute solution to that unsatisfactoriness. In fact, if we see it in the little things, in that little niggling affair that goes on in the mind and in the emotions, if we can see it in that, naturally in the body is not difficult, but more in the mind, if we can see it in that, we will not suffer from our dukkha at all or not as much because it's acceptable that's the way it is suffering from dukkha is the usual human reaction to it that doesn't help at all because when we're suffering we can't see things straight anymore so the contemplation for of a day what does it mean to be alive What's my mind doing? It's more important to investigate the mind than the body, but we can do both. But what's my mind doing? So the Buddha says, um, do you friends living in the world know and see it as an entirely happy place? And they said no. And then I said, have you ever experienced a single night or day or half a night or day that was entirely happy? And they replied no. I said, do you know a path or a practice whereby an entirely happy world might be brought about. And they replied, no. That's our esoteric magazines. They've got no end of ideas how we're going to make this world a happy place. And there are innumerable different ways and means that they have thought up. And obviously, Nothing works, because as long as there is craving for existence, there's got to be dukkha. Because craving brings dukkha. This craving for existence also has a very definite 
um, dukkha within it, namely the fear of non-existence, the fear of annihilation. Now, how does that manifest, the fear of annihilation? Well, first of all, it's a fear of death. Now, quite a few people will say, oh, well, it's all right for me to die. I don't mind because they think it's going to be a nice transition. I just don't want to suffer. And I also don't want my loved ones to die before me. So the fear of death is one thing that is the uh, real dukkha in the craving for existence because this is annihilation. But there are other annihilation points. Not being appreciated by others. Not being loved by others. Some people turn themselves upside down in order to be appreciated by others. It's their mode of existence. Not everybody does that, but a lot of people do. It makes for a very unsatisfactory life because we depend upon other people's opinions and emotions, which are totally undependable. We cannot depend even on our own, never mind on somebody else's. Because we need that support system for this person who we think we are and can't really support it with our own thought system. We try to find that support through the appreciation or the love from others. It's not satisfactory because we are craving for something outside of us over which we have no jurisdiction. Once we have seen that craving for existence, then we will realize that no matter how much we would like to be appreciated, understood, rightly judged, loved, it's not going to work. We're not going to get it all the time. Sometimes it may happen and other times it may not. And that's another way of trying to avoid annihilation. Because when we're appreciated and loved and understood and judged rightly, it's a support system. So the me isn't annihilated, the me is supported. And because the me is an illusion, it needs constant support all the time. The bigger our illusion, the more dangerous is that craving. I like to compare that to a very fat person trying to get through a fairly small door. That very fat person will bump into both sides of the door because there isn't enough room to get in. It's the same if one has an enormous craving for the ego support. At the slightest misjudgment or the slightest non-appreciation, one already feels bruised the bigger the ego, the easier it is to bruise it.
the smaller, the less danger there is. When there is none, it can't be bruised. Obvious, isn't it? So how does one go about it? Through contemplation. Through actually attaining an insight into one's daily, hourly, minutely happening manifestation of that craving. So here he says, do you know a path and a practice where an entirely happy world might be brought about? And they said no. And because people have a lot of dukkha and most of them know it, although they don't know the underlying cause for it, they do know they've got dukkha and blame something or other in their lives that isn't functioning properly for that dukkha, it's often thought that the spiritual path is one where one can relieve that dukkha by doing or saying or uh, experiencing something which brings happiness. It's not the Buddha's way. In German we call that Friede, Freude, Eierkuchen. Peace, joy and pancakes. It's not uncommon that that's taught. That's not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said there's only one way to be really happy and that's to get rid of Dukkha which means to get rid of the craving for existence. And that means one has to look at it. And it doesn't mean being unhappy about it. On the contrary, it means actually enjoying the clarity of one's mind, which has been established through calm meditation. So the path and the practice to happiness these ascetics and Brahmins didn't know. So then the Buddha says, Have you heard the voices of deities who have been reborn in an entirely happy world saying, The attainment of an entirely happy world has been well and rightly gained and we gentlemen have been reborn in such a realm? And they replied, No. What do you think, Potapada? Such being the case, does not the talk of those ascetics and Brahmins turn out to be stupid? The Buddha does not have any qualms about saying that the wrong teaching is stupid. He did not believe in trying to um, support any kind of spiritual teaching that did not go to the root of the matter. It's not the only discourse where he does talk about the wrong teachings, um, not always the word stupid, foolish, and so on. So now the Buddha is going to give a simile. It's quite funny, actually. And he says, It is just as if a man were to say, I'm going to seek out and love the most beautiful girl in the country. They might say to him, Well, as to this most beautiful girl in the country, do you know whether she belongs to the Katya, the Brahmin, the merchant, or the artisan class? 
And he would say, no. And then they might say, well, do you know her name, her clan, whether she's tall, short, or medium, dark or light-complexioned, or sallow-skinned, or what village or town or city she comes from? And he would say, no. And they might say, well, then, you don't know or see the one you seek for and desire. And he would say, no. Does not that talk of that man turn out to be stupid? Certainly, Lord, Buddha says. And now, apparently, he has sort of uh, gained more confidence in the Buddha's teaching, and he calls him Lord, whereas before he was calling him the ascetic Gautama. I gained some confidence that this might be true. So the Buddha is trying to show him that if one hasn't got a clue how one can bring about happiness, because obviously they don't know, because he said they don't know the path or the practice, then one shouldn't even talk about that. And they declare and believe that after death the self is entirely happy and free from disease. And yet they don't know the pathway to get there. So he's trying to show with the simile of the girl that one wants to love but has no idea how to find her, that this is stupid talk. And he uses the word stupid. And then he says, and so it is with those ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death the self is entirely happy and free from disease. And again he says, does not their talk turn out to be stupid? Certainly, Lord. This is a very um, ingrained belief uh, in practically every religion that if one doesn't do too many bad things, keeps sort of on the good path, then oneself is going to be happy forever after. It's a sort of an everlasting happiness that one is supposed to get. It, it can be found in practically all religions, that this sort of idea. But the Buddha never um, prescribed to that. He said the only way we are ever going to be happy is when the self has been seen for what it is, namely just an wrong idea, a mental formation. That's an interesting aspect of it also that one can investigate. The mental formation that makes all that happen. That too can be helpful. He gives another simile. And I think they're quite nice, so I, I will read it out. It's just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace at a crossroads. People might say to him, well now, this staircase for a palace that you're building, do you know whether the palace will face east, west, north, or south, or whether it will be high, low, or medium height? And he would say, no. And they might say, well then, you don't know or see what kind of a palace you're building the staircase for. And he would say, no. Don't you think that that man's talk would turn out to be stupid? Certainly, Lord. So we have two similes. One is looking for the girl that one wants to love and have no idea uh, where she lives and what she looks like. And the other one is building a staircase for a palace 
and one has no idea what the palace is going to look like. So one builds a staircase into, into the air, most likely, which is, of course, nonsensical. So this is what the way he wants to underline the fact that by saying that one can be happy, the self can be happy after death, and totally free from disease, is taking unknowns into consideration and trying to get to the result without having a pathway. It doesn't even, they don't even seem to say that one can have perfectly happy days and nights and a happy world. They're not believing in that but they're believing that there's happiness after death for the self, which is totally contrary to what the Buddha teaches, of course. And the reason he is going on about that at some length is because he does want to reintroduce the ideas that Potapada has already mentioned how he thinks of the self. We have already heard how Potapada thinks about the self, and now the Buddha is going to reintroduce him a little bit differently from Potapada's idea, but in any case, he wants to make him aware that this is a wrong way of looking at What is happening in this sutta is that we have somebody who hasn't practiced at all. He may have practiced his own path, but not what the Buddha teaches. So he's quite new to it all. And so the Buddha goes to great length to explain it in many different ways and details. And in the end, Potapada does say that he wants to be his disciple, but it takes him a while. And I think we could identify with that, that this is, doesn't go overnight, that we can actually realize that the self that is sitting there wanting to be happy is the one that's constantly getting in the way, over and over again. It's always getting in the way. It's getting in the way of our happiness, of our satisfaction, of our fulfillment. It's getting in the way in our daily life from morning to night. If we can look at it in a subjective manner, we will see that it's me. If we can look at it in an objective manner, we will see that it's a mental formation. When we see it as a mental formation, we don't get rid of it immediately not that easy to get rid of one's mental formations, as we have already experienced in meditation. But at least we've got a handle on it. What is it that's causing all this up and down, this agitation and restlessness, this desire and rejection? What's causing it all? And there's, of course, no other answer except the self 
illusion. The self-illusion which is rooted in the craving for existence. So if we can investigate both of those things, the mental formation of me and how our craving for existence manifests, we are coming nearer to the truth. As we come nearer to the truth, we will see what a genius the Buddha was. It's the only time in the history of mankind that this has been explained in this way. Obviously, many people admire the Buddha, are devoted to the Buddha, um, pray to the Buddha, do all sorts of things without seeing that genius aspect. It doesn't always happen in one's lifetime. Having this great opportunity to have it happen in this lifetime is a karmic resultant of great proportions. And one should not lose that opportunity. Very few people have it. It's a rarity. So, <clears throat> and it's another rarity to have little dust in one's eyes. So seeing the, the genius of this teaching which goes to the bottom of our existence means when we see it ourselves, when we in-see it, that we have understood it when we actually in-see it, when we can see it happen within us. That still doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of it immediately, but it's the only way that we're ever going to get rid of it. <clears throat> if we don't see it, how can we let go? We can only let go of that which we have fully in hand. Nothing else we can let go of. So whether we think it's interesting or not, if we have understood our own dukkha, we will certainly try to understand the cause of it and see it ourselves. <coughs> Tomorrow we'll get to the Buddha's explanations to Padapada on the self again, which is uh, somewhat a repetition, but it is more of an explanation this time. Last time, he, uh, Potapada, only postulated a self. Now he's going to get an explanation how it works. Or how it works that one doesn't have to believe in it anymore. <coughs>